0: you're listening to the divestopedia exit strategy podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them we elicit expert advice from exit planners attorneys merger and acquisition experts accountants business appraisers and financial advisors all with a goal of educating you about the sales process Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition.
1: and welcome. It's your host, Noah Rosenfarb from Freedom Business Advisors, here with John Bly. He's the author of Cracking the Code, an entrepreneur's guide to growing your business through mergers and acquisitions for pennies on the dollar. John, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Noah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me and hopefully uh, can help your listeners with a few different ideas.
1: Yeah, so you're a CPA. uh, we're, We're brethren in that respect. How'd you get interested in Cracking the Code?
2: Yeah, good question. It really started about 11 years ago, just thinking about how growing a professional service firm was a struggle organically, and so got really excited about growing it inorganically, and so now in the last 11 years have done 11 acquisitions on the CPA side and have done three as of last week on the fitness business side. So have two different core businesses and have done 14 acquisitions in the last 11 years and also have done a bunch of exits. We've sold four divisions of our company over that period. And so over that period, just getting really excited about helping entrepreneurs think about both buy side and sell side and adding value so that when they decide they want to get out, they have the right formula and the right buyout and the right structure. So that's really how I got passionate about it.
1: So perhaps it might be unfair to call an addiction to acquisition. You know, what keeps you in this process of continuing to buy companies instead of grow organically or or in addition to, I should say?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't heard it called an addiction, but I have heard people call me a junkie. So I don't know, (laughs) 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 you know, I think the thing that excites me about acquiring as a strategy is it helps people grow faster right a lot of people are looking to grow and they look at you know hiring another salesperson starting a new niche area opening a new market different city you know they look at those as the next strategies when really there's the studies out there on starting new businesses are 80 plus percent fail in 5 years but 90% of all businesses purchased in the US according to banking studies are still in business 5 years later And those two dynamics are radically different. And so it's a way that entrepreneurs can grow their company faster with less risk, in my opinion. And at the same time, the benefits of a growing company for those people who have a company that's grown is it allows them to really focus on what they're really good at. Because as an entrepreneur, when you're a small company, you have to do 10 or 15 different things, of which you may only be passionate or good at three or four of those. And so when you're a small company, you have to do that. If you can accelerate it and get bigger faster rather than organically at 5, 10, 20% a year, you can get there faster and do just the stuff you really love.
1: And what about pricing? You know, I know people, they say, well, it's just cheaper for me to build it. I'm not going to buy it. I've already got my infrastructure and everybody wants crazy prices. What do you have to say to them?
2: You know, it's a great argument. I hear it all the time. I guess, you know, my argument to that is, okay, so if you're going to grow it organically, you're going to go hire a, let's say, a $100,000 salesperson just for easy math. And you're going to grow by hiring that next salesperson and you're going to invest 100000 in them in the first year. And, you know, if you're lucky, they might generate Two hundred thousand in the first year, maybe they'll do really well and they'll generate three or four hundred thousand. What I would say is that with that same hundred thousand dollar investment, in my experience, you could purchase a business for between. It depends on the business, but you could purchase a business between seven hundred thousand and a million dollars. Now, if somebody bought a business doing, you know, that they paid seven hundred thousand for as the down payment and, fi- and bank financing and that sort of thing. That hundred thousand instantly turns into between two and three hundred thousand of cash flow the first year. So if you buy a business for seven hundred thousand, they're generating likely two hundred thousand a profit. And so, you know, if you're gonna invest a hundred thousand, that's not a bad return. Never mind, you know, the future growth of it. So for me it's it's a trade off. It's an alternative growth strategy.
1: So tell me how you get to the pennies on the dollar in the title of your book. Obviously you're saying I'm gonna buy a seven hundred thousand dollar business, I'm only gonna use 100000 of my cash, where's the rest of the money coming
2: from? Yep. In most deals that I've done or that I advise on, because I've advised on over 300 transactions in the last 11 years, is if it's under $5 million, the purchase price, a significant majority of the funding comes through the banks, through the Small Business Administration, the SBA lending arm of the federal government lends to through the banks, through commercial banks throughout the US. And that is where a large chunk comes from, the SBA guarantees 75% of the debt so the banks don't have nearly as much risk which is why there's a lot of funding for acquisitions but there's not much for startups so a lot of it comes through that if the deal's a little bit more risky or maybe it's too owner driven meaning the owner was a really key person to the business then there's probably some owner financing to it but it's it's usually not a huge percentage but you know it could be 5 10 25% 30% somewhere in there maximum probably in the deals that I normally see under that 5 million range
1: So those 300 transactions that you've done, how many of them were for clients of yours that were looking to grow their business versus exit their business, you know, just to give us some perspective?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's probably about 225 that were looking to grow and 75 that were looking to sell.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's take the growing companies first. You know, you and I were talking before we got on the call here about companies growing through acquisitions prior to wanting to have their own exit. So do you have some clients that are doing tuck-in acquisitions before they're looking to sell their own company?
2: Absolutely. We're working through one right now on the exit where about five or six years ago, they said, hey, we want to sell in 15 to 2018, somewhere in that time frame. But the multiples for our business get significantly larger if we get above $10 million. But we think we're going to grow too slow to get there organically. What do you think about doing it inorganically and doing a tuck-in? And that's exactly what they did. They bought a smaller company with doing about a million and a half, two million in revenue. And because they bought it, they bought it for about four times. It's a, it's a recurring revenue model. So they bought it for about four times recurring revenue. And they're turning around right now and they're getting eight times on the sale. Because wow. they added it to their core business. Their core business, it they then raised their revenue multiple because they got to where a public company now is actually interested in buying them and that transaction is going to close next week.
1: Congratulations. Sounds like a smart move. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing where when you're a decent sized company, acquisitions can make a lot of sense. They make more sense if you already own a company. If you're starting from scratch an acquisition makes sense still in my opinion, but it's a little bit more risky. If you already own a company though, doing an acquisition to me is much less risky than starting a new division or growing by the ne- hiring the next salesperson. You know, The stats out there show you can basically flip a coin on whether the next hire is going to be productive and you're going to keep them long-term and they're going to be engaged. So it's better than that based on government studies about the success of buying a business.
1: What do you see as the biggest challenges for people that are integrating an acquisition into their company?
2: Usually, if they're not paying attention, they miss one or two things on the front end and they're really big things. One is either culture. They get so focused on the numbers through the due diligence process that they forget to pay attention what the cultures are going to look like when they mesh, and that causes problems when it comes to integration time. The other thing is integration of systems. And so they, they don't think about the I.T. and the people and how they're physically going to integrate them until literally, probably the day they close. And then they think, "Huh, I didn't spend enough time thinking about the integration process. Now I've got 60 days of figuring that out, and you know, now I'm behind the eight ball, and I thought we'd all hit the ground running, and I can't because I didn't think about this ahead of time.
1: Have you seen any of the failures amongst your clients on the integration side?
2: Yeah, usually it's more culture on those two things because we harp a lot on integration. But if they're not paying attention to the culture, even though we discuss it a lot, they might miss it on the culture side. And what ends up happening typically in a case like that is three, six, 12 months in, one or two of the key people on the company they bought you know, end up disappearing. And mm-hmm. we haven't found that to be very impactful to the business, except it's a real pain for six, 12 months, you know, as you hire a new person, find the replacement, get them up to speed, you know, it doesn't overall affect the deal structure. It's just that it's sort of a pain point for a period of time.
1: And what would you say are are some of the strategies that work best when negotiating price for a deal?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a great one, because a lot of people, when somebody says, oh, they want too much money for the business, you know, that's a very common thing. And it sounds like, Based on your question a few questions ago about you know what do you say to people who say it's too expensive, that's what I hear most of the time is, oh, it's too much. Well, my comment repeatedly to people is, think about it. There are so many things in the negotiation process. If you say a million dollars is too expensive to buy this company, what if they were willing to finance it at no interest for five years? Well, now you're not really paying a million at net present value. You're paying less than that. Or what if they were willing to work for free for six months? Or... What if they were willing to leave the AR and the cash in the business? There are just so many things that are negotiable that I tell, I try to advise clients, don't run at the price discussion right off the bat. Think about the fact that there's probably 20, 30, 40 different negotiating points that, okay, you know, if they want a million, that seems to be something that they're really passionate about because they want to say they sold their company for a million dollars. Think about all the other things you can win on and say, well, I gave you the price, so let's revisit this, I really need this back in return, or I really need that back in return. And when they take that approach, instead of an all-or-nothing type of approach, I typically find that the deals get done a lot smoother and both sides end up winning.
1: We have a, a saying, we say, you know, you tell me whatever price you want as long as I can set the terms. <laughs> so, you know, I'll pay you whatever you want, I just get to decide when, right? So... Uh... Yeah, I agree with that. It's all in the terms. And terms could be very meaningful. So you mentioned a couple of terms that might be important, whether it's the owner contributing, the seller contributing labor at no cost post-closing, working capital adjustments, the actual length of time that the payments will be made, the interest rate on the payments. Any other big term conditions that you've seen that have been very influential in getting a deal closed?
2: Yeah, you know, there's some others. Some are terms of non-competes, and non-solicitations. There are extending those or shortening them, depending on which side you're representing and how the deal is structured. Another is a lot of times, and you probably see this as well, in small businesses, many entrepreneurs decide to buy their own commercial real estate. And so they're occupied, their business runs out of a piece of property they own. And sometimes that goes in the transaction and sometimes it doesn't. And what those lease terms like might look like or What if they're going to lease them? Can I lease it for three years from the seller and have an option at today's price to buy it in three years rather than at some inflated price? I mean, lots of times that's a negotiating tool because maybe they can't come up with enough down payment to buy it, but they really want the real estate. Those sorts of things tend to move the needle, you know, a decent portion. Another one besides just the length of time you pay the person over is the interest rate. I mean, there's a big difference between if you're going to pay the owner some over time at 8% versus 4% and 0%. I mean, those are significantly different payment terms. And then the last one would be, you know, just sort of how long the seller stays with the business. You know, sometimes I've had clients who want the seller to stay for a long time. And sometimes I have clients who want them to disappear day one. They don't want them to ever show up. And those are all varying terms that you're sort of playing with, you know, both sides' egos as you work through the transaction.
1: Yeah. What's the biggest challenge you've seen in getting a deal closed that still ended up closing?
2: (laughs) Let's see that's a tough one. I would say I've seen so many where they should have closed that fell apart <laughs> because somebody's yeah. ego because somebody's ego got in the way. You know sometimes what I've seen when deals fall apart is really emotional and it's it's usually falling apart because of emotions. It's rare that I see somebody work through something really challenging and still get the deal done. The only time I would say I've seen that is a transaction about two years ago, and the seller. Really wanted a certain price. It was a little bit higher than they should have paid, than the buyer should have paid. And they worked through terms for months. It was probably three, four months going back and forth, back and forth. And what they ended up settling on was because the seller was really adamant about the price. And what they ended up settling on was okay, we'll agree to a minimum price, which is not quite, it's probably 80% of what the seller wanted. But if these earnout terms are hit, which they were challenging but not impossible. And they said, you know, we'll give you instead of what your offer is, we'll give you 20% more on the upside. And so the buyer sort of covered their, you know, minimum floor that they were willing to pay and then was willing to give upside if certain benchmarks were hit. But that took a long time to work through because both sides were sort of adamant about their own positions.
1: And how do you see the role of an accountant in an acquisition for an accounting firm client? Maybe you could walk me through what does your firm do and perhaps how it might differ from the industry average.
2: Sure. I think a lot of firms are really focused on due diligence. And specifically on due diligence, they're focused on two things. One is the actual process of financial due diligence, which is, okay, let's look at financials and make sure they tie to tax returns. And and then the second thing is, let's look at tax structure of the deal. And they talk about, you know, what does that look like? Is it going to be an asset sale, a stock sale? What are we going to do for purchase price allocation? That's typically where a CPA firm stops. Now, where we differ is we have a lot of discussions on the front end with clients about the strategy. So it's a lot about strategy. Okay, you want to sell in five years? Maybe you do a tuck-in now. Or, geez, you want to sell in a year and a half? Here's two or three things we need to do immediately. You're going to sell to a public company. You're going to start to need audited financial statements three years before you're going to sell. Probably would be good, and let's start that process. Those sorts of discussions are things that a lot of people are not having, those proactive discussions. The other is, we in our process, we talk a lot about integration and culture, which a lot of CPA firms just don't focus on because they haven't done acquisitions themselves to know what the pain points are. Because we've done so many at our firm ourselves, where we've actually been the buyer, we know where the pain points can be in culture and HR and those sorts of things. I mean, a few years ago, we were advising on a transaction and we didn't we didn't get very deep into it because we recognized very quickly that... There was an Obamacare issue, but we didn't recognize it because anybody spelled it out or because there was a tax issue. This was just a sense of they were doing. This company was growing so fast, and they were so profitable, and the sellers were fairly young individuals that we said, you know, there's got to be something else here. And so we thought about it for a day or two and just went back to our potential buyer and said, you know what, I think there's an Obamacare issue. Let me just call the, and this is right after the law was passed. It was probably six months after, so none of the regulations had even been written. And we called the investment banker and we said, you know, here's what we think the issue is. Here's why we think they're selling. I need some sanity check on this. And they said, the investment banker used a few choice words and then said, I think you might be right. And they took it right off the market. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I don't think that that's accounting firms from what we understand and from our competitors in the market aren't necessarily doing these sorts of things. So
1: who do you see is filling the void? I mean, obviously, you've created your own niche in advising companies on you know, how to either handle a merger or an acquisition or a divestiture. What's your perception of the marketplace and who's helping the owners?
2: I think there's people trying to help owners, right? I think it's sometimes teams of people, it's attorneys, it's bankers, not just their corporate banker, but an investment banker or a business broker and their attorneys. And so I think it's sort of a team approach in most cases. If you don't sort of have a team like that, that can be a problem. If you don't have some people helping you, I've been on sides of transactions many times where we, you know, ate the other party's lunch, for lack of a better term. I mean, they were awful. They could not perform. You know, we would laugh because we'd be like, okay, we're definitely winning this issue because the other side of the transaction does not know what the transaction is, and they're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so they just—you have to have qualified advisors. And when I say qualified advisors, people who actually do deals and pay attention to what's going on in the marketplace, because these negotiating points can shift the deal to a win-loss pretty quickly.
1: I agree. How have you seen things change over the course of the last few years? What would you say are the biggest things that you see evolving as you look at the M&A marketplace?
2: The biggest thing is the baby boomers uh, aging out of every business. The availability of capital now compared to 2008, 9, 10, and 11. And combined with the price, the price right now is really hot. So all of that led to, and you may have had this in a previous podcast, but there was some stats that came out about six weeks ago, that the first quarter of 2015 had more M&A transaction than any quarter in the prior 16 years. Wow. I didn't see and that. that. And that is going to continue to heat up. And so that over the next, it's projected that between now and maybe the end of 2018, that it will be the hottest M&A market probably of all time. There's lots of stats that show that about 63 to 70% of all businesses that are privately held are owned by baby boomers. Yeah. And they're exiting, you know, the folks that were late baby boomers where they're significantly older now, well, they had to survive the recession of 2008, 9, 10, 11. So they delayed their exit, which sort of condensed this whole M&A process into a really short five-year cycle.
1: So I heard some statistics the other day that there's $550 billion of cash on private equity firm balance sheets and another $500 billion of committed capital to open funds. Besides the, you know, whatever it is, $1 or $2 trillion of capital that they're looking to raise. So, you know, in my perspective with the clients that I'm interacting with, which tend to be the target market of these private equity firms, I can't imagine a better time to sell, you know, like you said, these next couple of years. What's your prediction for what's going to happen afterwards?
2: Yes, you're exactly right. And then we have the perfect storm coming of 2018, 2019, somewhere in that range. Everybody I've seen, and I've been a believer of it for probably six years now, I've been talking about this. 2018, 2019, somewhere in there, the market's going to shift drastically. I'm not a stock market predictor, so I'm not making any predictions like that. But in the M&A space, the boomers will have significantly exited. The capital you're describing will have been used. And now it's tied up typically for three, five, seven years as they grow the business before they sell it. Because those types of investors are flipping them. Combine that with interest rates will have risen, right? We've been at historic lows now for seven years, and they're everybody projects they're gonna rise significantly between now and then. And so the banks you're not gonna be able to get bank capital at the same low percentages, which drives down prices because you can't leverage it as much. And then there aren't gonna be as many sellers because the baby boomers will have significantly exited, and people will only be in two, three, four years of ownership. So they're not gonna be selling. So between now and 2018 is the time to sell if you were to at least my predictions you know by 2018 2019 it will have flipped and it will stay that way for three or four years till 2022 somewhere in there
1: yeah that's kind of my guess as well and i think rob slee i don't know that i've ever had rob on the show but rob has a uh, a cyclical market kind of diagram going through the you know 60s 70s 80s 90s and first decade of the 2000s showing when the markets were hot and when they were not, and, and we're just repeating the same cycle. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, you got it. Yeah. So what do you think are the most important takeaways for owners that are thinking about exiting in the next two to five years? What should they be thinking about?
2: If they're looking to exit in the next two to five years, they need to be thinking more like two than five. I mean, that would be my number one recommendation, is if you need to exit by 2020, you better shorten that time horizon to two years. Because if you're thinking five years, there's not gonna be very many buyers my prediction, by 2020, and the price you're going to get is going to be lower. So that would be number one, would be to start looking at the market now, especially with all the transactions and all the capital. Prices have risen significantly in the last two years on businesses. They're transacting for higher multiples because there's more money and it's lower interest rates. So that would be number one. Number two would be just to make sure your operations and financials are in really solid order because people want to buy companies that are running well. And you know what happens when somebody makes an offer and they start doing due diligence is they start chipping away at that price they're willing to pay as they find all these holes and gaps. So you really want to shore up your standard operating procedures and your financials and make sure they're in good working order.
1: Couldn't agree more. As we look at the multiples, one of the things I tell clients that have this, you know, I want to wait till I'm 67 mentality. I don't want to sell when I'm 64. Is I try and equate it to a stock market, you know, and if you owned Google or Apple, And you could get what you say was a ridiculously high price for it today. You know, would you rather sell it today or would you rather wait till your 67th birthday with all the (laughs) unknowns? How do you interact with clients around this window of time that we have in front of
2: us? (laughs) You know, it's a great point. What sometimes entrepreneurs, this is where entrepreneurs struggle, is they sometimes feel if they haven't had a failure or if they haven't gone through a business cycle, they feel like they're invincible. And so their business is only going to get to be more valuable. When you deal with somebody, which we're advising right now on a hopeful exit, it's they don't they're working through the book right now and putting it out to market, but this person has, you know, upside to his business, but he's been through a couple cycles in the last 20 years and has had some losses in other companies, startups, and has also seen a family business hold on too long and lose a lot of value. And so you really if you're an entrepreneur, the thought is you want to sell on the way up, not on the way down. Because if you're selling a company, when it's growing and when it's going up and when there's profit and cash flow and all that, everybody wants to buy. When you own a company that's going down, there aren't as many buyers and the multiple, even if it's the same thing, even if it's the same profit, let's say it's you know half a million dollars, half a million going up to 600 and 700 versus a half a million coming down to 400, the multiple could be one or two times different. And it's a yeah. big difference. So you really want to be selling on the upside, not the downside.
1: We had a guest right. on And his quote was great. He said, uh, you know, I went to meet with the seller and he said, you know, Matt, things are too good. I don't want to sell. So, you know, the broker says to him, okay, why don't you call me when things are bad? (laughs) You know, I'm sure (laughs) we can find somebody then. (laughs) uh, Right. I think that's, that's great. Sometimes the owner's perspective is they like reaping the benefits of all their hard work, especially coming out of that recession. And, you know, our clients are making money now and they're feeling good and they want to, live in the moment and think it'll last forever. But we all know that it doesn't always last forever, right? So that's right. And what else would you have as advice for an owner that's thinking about doing an acquisition? How do you help coach them to be aggressive about either their search or being willing to pay what the high prices that people are looking for nowadays?
2: Yeah. So one of the things on the search specifically is I tell people to realize that You're gonna have to knock on a few doors sometimes before you find the right house that fits. And that means you're gonna have to share information. If you're a member of a CEO type group, like the entrepreneurs organization or Vistage or YPO or something like that, you get this concept, which is some sort of transparency and opening the door to show people, you know, you're inside. And as a buyer, you have to be willing to do some of that because the more transparent you are with the potential seller, the more they are going to open up the commode and share the good and the bad about their business. And so you really just have to have a very open and frank and sharing discussion both ways. And I find that that leads to more successful deals because they know what the holes are and they're sharing it and they're willing to work through those holes and they they have a plan for fixing those holes before they acquire the business.
1: Unfortunately, I haven't found a great way for my clients to get a pipeline of deals unless they're willing to write a check each month to someone to go search for them. How have you found sure. deals? How has your client sourced deals? What are some of the tips and strategies you have there?
2: Sure. This one I'm going to use myself as the case study because, you know, 11 years ago I started basically at the start with Google and starting with searching for, if you're looking for a specific industry and you Google that industry, you will find that almost every industry has experts that sell those types of companies. So you can start with something passive like that. Then we started, you know, if you fast forward, and we found a couple of deals that way. Then you fast forward 12, 18, 24 months, and we started to get our own traction around this. We started to tell every banker we knew. We started to tell every attorney we knew. If you were not me, you'd tell every CPA you knew as well. You'd tell every financial advisor, anybody who those core people are that serve the entrepreneur business owner. You let them know that hey, I'm looking to grow my business, and I'm looking to do it through some acquisitions. You know, here's what here's our strategy. If you happen to run across anybody, and more times than not, I will hear. You know, I know a guy who's 65 years old, and I don't think he has any strategy for exit. I'll see. I'll reach out to him because people like helping other people be successful. That's one of the weird phenomenons I've found over the last 11 years is that people want to see other people be successful, even if there's nothing in it for them. And so sharing that idea. Then we've also blogged about it. So if you Google, you know, CPA firm, merger and acquisition, terms like that, we always fall on page one. Now, we fall below the four or five that sell businesses in our industry, but we're on page one and we get leads that way because they read our blogs and they reach out to us. That's Another great. thing we've done is we send direct mail to about, now it's up to about just under 100 competitors within about 100 miles of us, who we know we've targeted our marketing person and, and administrative assistant have targeted which CPA firms fit our category. This data is mostly public. It's not very hard to find. And in a few hours, they can target these people. And that turns into opportunities every single month. So we send those letters every six months. And today I had a meeting with two of those firms. One of them kept the letter from 16 months ago on their desk, and they waited for now to reach out. And another one just got the letter for the first time in May and reached out to us. So it's amazing how many... Now, we've had... Hundred of those opportunities over the years, we've only done eleven of the deals, but it's because you know, in an initial meeting, we can tell them, "Hey, we're not the fit for you." We can refer them to somebody else that that we know in the market might be looking for an acquisition.
1: Well, but those are the basic solid, ways to find. That's a pretty solid batting average compared to the you know the private equity investors I talk to that say we get a hundred deals to look at and we might close on one or two. <laughs> so he's yep. done pretty good yeah well, we've done
2: our research on the front end when we do these mailings to make sure we've eliminated a lot of the firms that we know are not going to be a fit now we haven't eliminated all of them because we've still met with a bunch that we <laughs> that we didn't do but but we try to screen on the front end before we even do the mailer but yeah. the mailer, letting the attorney and the advisors and the bankers and the financial advisors you know sharing it even at industry conferences we share at industry conferences that we're looking to continue to acquire I mean these things just have a life of their own blogging. I mean, it's amazing the opportunities we get. We get a lot of inbound leads for CPA firms looking to be acquired.
1: That's great. So John, kind of open ended question. What else do you want to share with the listeners?
2: I would say just recap a couple things. If you haven't thought about an acquisition, think about it as an alternative growth strategy. It provides you a lot of different venues for growth and a lot of different strategies around it. And if you're thinking about an exit, Think sooner rather than later, unless you're looking more than five years out. In which case, you know, just make sure you're prepping your business for that ultimate time. And every discussion that you're in with another one of your colleagues, you know, competitors, think being a buyer and a seller in every meeting, and think about whether you know you can have an opportunity to sell to them or a chance to buy their business.
1: Great advice, John. I want to thank you for coming on the show today, John Bly, cracking the code. John, how should the listeners get in touch with you?
2: Our website is www.lba. H-S.com. You can email me at john Bly, B-L-Y, at L-B-A-H-S.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.
1: Sounds great. Thanks for coming on the show today. And uh, to all our listeners, don't forget to like us on iTunes and leave us your feedback. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at Divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business For the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.